If you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles and let's open up to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 15. Uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 15. Uh, we've been here before. Uh, we ended our verse-by-verse study of Exodus 1 through 15 back in August of 2015. Uh, if you'll remember from there, we left Exodus 1 through 15. We went to Romans 9 and 10 and spent some time there. Uh, we then had kind of our special series in Daniel 1 through 6, looking at those classic Sunday school stories and learning about how we can have courage as we trust in the sovereignty of God. Uh, but now we are returning to what was and what is our primary Old Testament study, uh, which is the book of Exodus. And on Sunday nights, beginning in a couple of weeks, we'll return to our primary New Testament study, the book of Romans, and we'll pick up in Romans 11. Uh, both of these books, Exodus in the Old Testament, Romans in the New Testament, are among the richest in the entire Bible. Because of what they teach us about God and about man and about salvation and about how to live a life that brings blessing. Uh, if you'll remember, when we last left the people of Israel, we had seen God do remarkable things for them. Uh, we saw the ten plagues that God poured out on the Egyptians because they would not let his people go free. Uh, we saw things like water being turned into blood, uh, frogs filling up people's houses, uh, locusts attacking, hell from the sky, intense darkness, and we witnessed that final climactic plague the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt. And then we watched as God uh, split the Red Sea, allowing for His people to cross that sea in safety. And then we watched as the Egyptian army was covered by the waters and drowned. Uh, in Exodus 15, we saw the people of God full of joy, full of praise, uh, in most of Exodus 15, what we have is the singing of God's people. They are, they are rejoicing together in song. The freedom for which they had been longing for for centuries had finally come. 400 years they had been in bondage in Egypt. 400 years, and now they are free. God had answered their prayers, and He had done so in ways beyond anything they could have ever dreamed or imagined. How happy, how awestruck, how, how deeply grateful the people of Israel were. And then how quickly things changed. Uh, in our passage this morning, we see the praises turn into protests. The marveling turn into murmuring. The gratitude turn into groaning. The celebration ceases. And the complaining begins. Uh, the people of Israel have been saved from the clutches of Egypt. But now they have to move forward to the promised land. And it turns out that this journey is not going to be a bed of roses. Mount Hermon, before we even look at this passage, do you not see how God has here a message for us? 
that this is not some antiquated story with little relevance to you or me. No, this is a picture of us. Do you remember when you were first saved? Do you remember the joy you felt as you trusted Christ and had the assurance that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Do you remember the thrill of being able to say for the first time, my sins are forgiven? Surely that first taste of Jesus' love for you was a great moment in your life, a great season in your life. Some of you in here, you can remember the exact moment that Jesus saved you. Others in here, maybe your faith came about a bit more gradually. But either way, there were no doubts, no doubt moments of, of immense joy. I think about your baptism. As you made that first public profession of faith in Christ, there was excitement, there was wonder. And yet how quickly did we find that first joy in Christ begin to slip away? Yes, we've been saved from hell. We've been saved from the eternal consequences of our sins. We've been saved from our bondage to sin. We've been saved from the captivity of Satan. But now here we are in the wilderness. We're not in the promised land yet. Now we are in the wilderness. We're we're heaven bound, but we're not heaven arrived. (laughs) We're still traveling. And it can be a rude awakening after our conversion to realize how hard Life can still be for us. Even though we've now become a Christian, it doesn't mean that people won't still not like us or even mistreat us. They may even do so more now because of our faith. Even though you've become a Christian, things still go wrong. There are still interruptions to your daily plans. There are failures and there are obstacles and there are disappointments. There's sickness and there's heartache and there's loss. We've been been redeemed from the clutches of the enemy, but now we're not yet in heaven. And this journey, it comes with some hardship. We replay this cycle all the time in the Christian life. We, we rise to heights of deep joy. Maybe as we come to church and we're reminded again of Christ's love for us. We rise to heights of joy as we sing the most glorious truths in the world or study our Bible at home or, or have our souls fed through Christian fellowship. But in this life, those heights of joy never last for very long. We are so fickle. That one minute we can have a heart brimming with gratitude and all it takes is one angry word from someone else. And suddenly we have a heart grouchy or despairing or upset. So as we look at Israel, we're not just looking at Israel. We're looking at the Bible as a mirror that shows us ourselves. What I want us to see in these verses 22 through 27 are the test the response, and the promise. The test, the response, and the promise. Look with me first at verses 22 through 24, and let's see the test. Verses 22 to 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water, 
When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Okay, so the worship service by the Red Sea is now over. Uh, The time of praise has ended. It's time to move. And frankly, this journey should not take very long. Uh, The people of Israel are below the southeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. They need to travel northeast to get to Canaan. Uh, The whole trip is about 250 miles. So from Rocky Mount to Boone, roughly. Uh, Since they're traveling as a group, since they're traveling on foot, we expect the whole wilderness journey to take 11 to 12 days, two weeks of of travel by foot at the most. But in our passage, Moses leads Israel in the opposite direction. Uh, Instead of going northeast, he starts taking them south. So already the people of Israel are being tested. Why is Moses leading us south? You and I know because we heard what God said to Moses from the burning bush back in Exodus 3. Uh, This wasn't years and years ago in Moses' life. The burning bush was just a few months ago. He was an 80-year-old shepherd minding his own business when all of a sudden right there at Mount Sinai, God appeared to him in a bush And after receiving God's commission for him to go back to Egypt to set the people of Israel free, we read this. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God. On this mountain. Where was Moses when God spoke to him out of the bush? He was at Mount Sinai. And God promised Moses that he would work through Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And afterwards, Moses was to come and he would serve God at the mountain. So Moses knows the itinerary. He knows where they're supposed to go. Yes, eventually the final destination is Canaan, the promised land. But there's a detour first. Israel has an appointment with God at Mount Sinai. And so he's taking them south. Now, here are the people of Israel following Moses, going south when they've been promised a homeland to the north. They're already confused, upset, what's going on here? And then things get worse. For three days, travel south, following the eastern coast of the Red Sea, they travel and find no drinking water. They obviously cannot drink water from the sea because that's salt water. And moreover, remember that the people of of Israel left Egypt in a hurry. They have their livestock with them, so they need a great deal of water. Surely they packed some stores of water, but they're fading fast, and now things are beginning to get desperate. Each day passes, they continue marching along, and no water appears. Uh, This is desert. Sometimes we use the word wilderness, but don't picture forests here. 
This is not wilderness in the sense of woods. This is not tall trees. There is very little vegetation in the Sinai Peninsula. Just enough for the hardiest of animals to graze. This is a hot, dry part of the world. And also, don't picture the land as flat, flat desert. It's not flat desert. It's, it's uh, hilly. There are even parts of the Sinai Peninsula that are quite mountainous. So these are not North Carolina mountains covered with trees. These are desert hills and desert mountains covered with only a small amount of vegetation. And growing a little more worried with every pressing hour, the people continue forward, waiting for fresh water to be found. And then praise be to God, it appeared. It may have been only a stream or a brook, but most believe it was actually something like a lake or a group of lakes. And you can imagine these thirsty Israelites cheering as they look ahead and there on the horizon they begin to see this body of water. Uh, Some may even have run ahead, throwing themselves down at the bank of the lake, cupping their hands, dipping their hands into the water. And they bring the water to their dry, parched lips and they, they take those first gulps and they spit it out because the water is tainted, poisoned, it's bitter, it's unclean. Uh, some suggest maybe there was excess sulfur in the water, maybe something else. Either way, it was toxic. It, it could not be drunk. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the thoughts going through these people's minds. Why would God do this to us? What kind of nasty trick is this? To raise our hopes and then dash them again. Water, water everywhere. And not a drop that we can drink. The animals are thirsty. The babies are thirsty. Everyone is thirsty. Well, Mount Hermon, this was no trick at all. This was a test. Uh, Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Uh, Forty years after this event, as Moses is about to die, he is going to stand before the people of Israel and recount this event. And when he speaks of God, leading the people of Israel through thirsty ground where there was no water, he tells them this was so that God would humble you and that this was so that God would test you. Moses tells the people of Israel that God brought this circumstance about in order to do them good in the end. In other words, God is not tormenting the people of Israel. He is testing them for their own welfare. Just as your muscles only grow strong when they're put to the test. So the muscle of your faith only grows strong as it is tested. You may be here this morning wondering why in the world God has led you to the place where you are right now. Why have these particular trials come your way? Why are these losses, these heartaches, these difficult circumstances happening to you? Well, friend, you can be certain that God is doing you good. James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There are benefits to your faith being tested by God. I'll just mention a few. Number one, as mentioned, through testing, our faith is strengthened. Our faith is refined. It is easy to say you trust God when you've never had to walk through a hard situation. It is very different to be able to say with experience that you trust God because you've lived it out when it was hard. The more we trust God in the difficult moments and watch Him prove Himself to be faithful again and again, the more our faith muscle grows and is able to believe God for greater things and bigger things. Our security, our peace, our joy, these are connected to how strong our confidence in God really is. Through trials, our confidence in God increases, and as our confidence in God increases, our joy and peace and security increases. Do you see the connection? So if if you don't go through trials, your peace and joy in Christ will remain shallow. It's only through trials that your faith is strengthened, that your confidence in God increases, and that the fruit of that is a deeper, stronger, more sure joy and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, count it all joy when trials come. The Lord is doing you good. Number two, uh, testing helps our hearts heavenward. Uh, Testing helps us to fall out of love with this world and to long more for the world to come. Testing helps remind us that we're still in the wilderness and helps us hunger even more for the promised land. Uh, Worldliness loses its grip on us when God uses suffering and loss to focus us on the world to come. Number three, testing equips us to serve and to help others. Your specific trials were appointed for you by God. And they were appointed for you that through them you would be made ready to better serve and care for the people around you. You have a unique perspective that has been shaped by your story. And we at this church need you. We need the you that God has created through the trials that you have been through. Your experiences... The the lessons that God has taught you through the trials of your life, they can benefit all of us. And perhaps God, working through your specific trials, is preparing you to help others who walk through those same kind of trials in the future. Uh, Number four, testing increases our assurance of salvation. When we are young in the faith, our assurance of salvation is based on the fact that we are convinced that we are truly trusting in Christ. But sadly, some people are deceived. They think they have true faith when what they have is something else. And a hard time comes in their lives and their faith is revealed to be false. It doesn't persevere their faith lets go of God and His Word and, and as, soon as, as soon as it becomes painful. 
But for the true believer, as years pass and trials are experienced, we can look back and see real indisputable evidence that God is keeping us. We can look back and see evidence of how God held us fast, kept us believing even when it was hard. We can say, I've maintained my commitment to Jesus, my love for Jesus, my desire to serve Jesus. And that's evidence of God's keeping grace. And so we have greater grounds for assurance as we walk through more and more trials. Well, fifth and finally in this list, Testing humbles us. Uh, This is what Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy about why this event happened here in Exodus. He said, God brought this event about in order to humble you. And friend, at the end of the day, every trial is given for this purpose. To humble us. Because pride is the great enemy of our lives. God resists the proud. Pride will cause you to fall into all sorts of terrible snares. God's blessings come upon the humble. So God works through trials to rid us of our pride and to help us cultivate and grow in humility. Could we not give testimony this morning that it was in the hardest moments of our lives that we most felt our frailty and our need for God? When have we most felt our utter dependence upon God? When did we pray most fervently? When did we cry out to God most earnestly? Was it not in those seasons when we were the most troubled and therefore the most humbled? It's through humility that our intimacy with God grows. Our relationship with God is strengthened when we're humbled through trials. And so trials are a gift. They don't feel like a gift, do they? They don't feel like a gift. But trials are a gift from God, and we should embrace them. So that's the test. Number two, briefer, the response. And we actually see two responses in, this, in these verses to this test that God brings upon Israel. So the first response of the people is in verse 24. Verse 24. Uh, it's summed up in four words, and the people grumbled. And the people grumbled. So this is the opposite of faith. Faith trusts in the midst of a trial. Unbelief grumbles in the midst of a trial. Humble dependence on God waits quietly for God to provide, knowing that He eventually will. Proud unbelief loses patience. Proud unbelief gets angry. Proud unbelief complains in the midst of a trial. Sadly, even in our Christian lives, there is still a lot of pride in us to be gotten rid of. And there's still a lot of unbelief. We have true saving faith at the core of our being, but even that faith can be inconsistent and wavering and fickle. One of the telltale signs that we're not trusting God as we ought is that in the midst of the circumstances of our lives, we begin to gripe. We begin to whine. One of the best Puritan paperbacks you can read is by Jeremiah Burroughs. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Do you have that rare jewel? In that book, Burroughs mentions some reasons that a murmuring spirit, 
a grumbling, complaining spirit is so evil. I think we tend to look upon grumbling and complaining as one of those more respectable sins, right? It's one of those sins that, that you know, we really shouldn't worry that too much about if we complain or gripe a lot. Um, yet it is actually a very harmful sin. And it is, of course, a very wicked sin. Um, listen to some of Burroughs' reasons why the sin of grumbling is so evil. Uh, these were summarized by a guy named B.J. Stockman. First... Grumbling models Satan. Grumbling models Satan. Burroughs says, The devil is the most discontented creature in the world. The devil is the proudest creature there is and the most discontented creature and the most dejected creature. Now therefore, as much discontent as you have, so much of the spirit of Satan do you have. Ouch. It's strong, isn't it? Friends, it was the discontent of Satan that led him to his great rebellion that resulted in the fall of angels and the fall of man and and all the pain and the misery of our lives. Second, grumbling is contrary to who you are as a Christian. It's contrary to your very identity. Burroughs asked this, he says, Are you not the king's son? Are you not the king's daughter? Are you not the son and daughter of the king of heaven? And yet you get so disquieted and troubled and vexed at every little thing that happens. As if a king's son were to cry out that he is undone because he lost a toy. What an unworthy thing this would be. And yet this is what you do. You cry out as if you are undone. And yet you are the king's son. Now Herman, when we consider who our father is, when we consider that we are heirs with Christ of everything in this world and that one day we're going to walk on streets of gold and that we're going to see the face of Christ and we're going to experience the new heavens and the new earth because we have the King as our Father. Why are we going to complain because the car in front of us won't just go faster? But we do, don't we? We do. Third, grumbling is the opposite of prayer. Grumbling is the opposite of prayer. Burroughs says, by murmuring, you undo your prayers, for it is exceedingly contrary to the prayer that you make to God. When you come to pray to God, you acknowledge His sovereignty over you. You come there to profess that you are at God's disposal. In other words, when we go to pray, we're saying to God, God, thy will be done. When we grumble, we're saying, wait a minute, God, change your will. It's it's not going well with, with what I want, right? So grumbling is the opposite of prayer. Fourth, this is important, grumbling is a waste of time. Grumbling is a waste of time. Burroughs says, how many times do men and women, when they're discontented, let their thoughts just run, and they muse and they contrive through their present discontentedness. They let their discontented thoughts work in them for hours and hours together. They spend their time in vain. How many times have you allowed yourself to just waste time being caught up in all your complaints and grumblings and discontentedness? How much loss have you experienced? How much profitable time has been lost in that kind of experience? Fifth, grumbling swallows up the blessing of mercy before it arrives. Let me say that again. Grumbling swallows up the blessing of mercy 
before it arrives. Think about it this way. When God gives you a gift, okay, and you know you don't deserve it, but God gives it to you anyway, there is joy there. But pride makes you think you deserve gifts from God. And when He doesn't give them as quick as you want, you start grumbling. And then when He finally gives it, you're not even all that thankful because you felt like you earned it. You felt like you ought to have had it. Grumbling takes the joy out of the gifts of God. Um, Burroughs says that these gifts of God can prove to be the greatest crosses and afflictions you've ever had because of this. Your heart was already set on them before you had them. You can taint the good gifts of God by having a grumbling spirit. Don't do that. Finally, number six, grumbling only worsens sufferings and afflictions. Grumbling only worsens sufferings and afflictions. Is Israel any better off because they're grumbling about their thirst? Are they any less thirsty? <laughs> right? Have they solved any problems by, by griping and whining rather than praying and trusting? No. Burroughs says grumbling in no way removes our afflictions. Indeed, while they continue, they're a great deal worse and heavier For a discontented heart is a proud heart, and a proud heart will not pull down his sails when there comes a tempest and a storm. If a sailor, when a tempest and a storm comes, is perverse and refuses to pull down his sails, then he is discontented with the storm, and his condition is not any better because he is discontented and doesn't pull down his sails. This is a picture of a a boat. When the storm comes, you take down your sails. So that the boat isn't turned round and around with the wind going into the sails. The proud person throws up grumbling and complaining in the midst of the trials. And it's like keeping up the sails. It just makes it worse. It just lets your pride get offended again and again and again. And it makes your trials heavier. So what is the right response to trials? Well, we see it in verse 25. So look at verse 25. See the right response to trials. This is talking about Moses. And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So see the two different responses to trials in our passage. The people of Israel grumbled. Moses prayed. When trials come, we do best to humble ourselves to acknowledge our dependence upon God, and to take our every need to Him in prayer. We entrust ourselves to God's loving care, to His loving provision. We wait on the Lord. Whatever trial you might be facing this morning, whatever you might be walking through, this is God's command for you. Don't grumble. Pray. Pray and trust yourself to the will of God and wait for His provision. Here in our passage, God directed Moses' attention to a tree, to a log. When Moses threw the tree into the water, the water became sweet and it became drinkable. The God who had already performed numerous astounding miracles for the people of Israel to set them free from Egypt now performs yet another miracle to show that he will provide for them. That he is worthy of their trust. What is the right response to trials? Trust. And show it through prayer and waiting. 
Note the promise. This is the last part of our message. See the promise in verses 25 and 26. We'll start with the second half of verse 25. Look at what God does here. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Notice that Israel is not automatically spared the same punishments that came upon Egypt just because they're Israelites. No, God says that if you follow the way of the Egyptians, you, my children Israel, if you don't trust me, if you live in disobedience, the same things I did to Egypt, they will come upon you. Israel, you cannot rest upon your ethnicity. Israel, you cannot rest upon the fact that Abraham's blood flows through your veins. True faith must be in your hearts. The whole point of this test was to expose to the eyes of Israel their lack of faith and their need to trust God more. It was a call for them to deepen their trust. Now, Herman, hear this. You may have been brought up in church. You may have been brought up in a family that loves Jesus. None of that matters if you haven't come to own the faith for yourself. Have you come to trust Jesus? Do you talk to Jesus? Have you committed to a life of of walking with Him and following Him? Can you say Jesus is my Savior, my hope of heaven, my Lord? How does true trust in God express itself? Look at what God calls Israel to do. He calls them to diligently listen to the voice of the Lord their God. He calls them to do what is right in His eyes. And then He puts it differently. They are to give ear to His commandments. They are to keep His statutes. So He says it twice. What does true faith look like? True faith listens to God True faith trusts what it hears and obeys. True faith listens, true faith obeys. When we listen to God and then obey God, we find that He honors that faith by being our healer. When you trust the great physician of souls and you listen to what He tells you and you follow His prescription, you are healed. Friends, what sins are ailing you this morning? Is it pride or greed or lust or selfishness? What is wreaking havoc on your life? Whatever it is, this is the answer. Listen diligently to your God. Trust what He says and then act on it. We must be doers and not just hearers of the Word. If you go to the doctor and you hear what he says, but you don't actually follow his instructions, you won't get well. We must do, put into action our faith. There are so many people who claim to be Christians for whom God's word doesn't actually hold sway in their lives. Are you a person of conviction? Are you a person who not only knows the word of God, you keep the word of God? 
Do you trust God enough to do what He says when it's hard for you? When it means giving up that relationship because God says it's wrong. When it means losing money because you know the route that you're taking to get it lacks integrity. When it means sacrificing time and energy and making yourself tired because God has called you to love the people around you in this church and in your community. Mount Hermon, may we never be hypocrites in this place. We want to be the real deal. And the real deal are people who trust the Lord Jesus Christ and show it by putting His words into action. And then, when our journey of faith is over, we will come to a place where everything we need is there in abundance. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Elim is like a tiny promised land. (laughs) Elim is an oasis in the desert. Elim is like a glimpse of Canaan in the wilderness. Twelve springs of fresh water, seventy palm trees to provide shade and coolness. These few verses here in chapter 15 summarize all that is about to happen to Israel. They're going to wander in the desert. They're going to be put to the test. They're going to fail the test. God will show them time and again that he will provide for them if they will trust him. And finally, he is going to bring them to a place abounding with all that they need. Now, Herman, our Elim is before us. Our, our 12 springs of water, our 70 palm trees, our Canaan, our promised land, heaven is before us. One day soon, we will know the rest of heaven. We will know the enjoyment of heaven as we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. But till then, let us recognize that God tests us for our good. Let us put away all grumbling and complaining Let us take God at his word and trust his promises, taking our every need to him in prayer. And while we wait for God to bring the answers, let us listen to his words, let us trust them, and let us obey them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.